Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is an encore episode with Angus Deaton about the work in his career for which he was awarded the Economics Nobel Prize. I'm Cardiff Garcia. Alpha Chat will begin its third season next week, and we have lots of exciting stuff planned. But this week, we are re-releasing a long and really wonderful conversation that we had with Angus Deaton just after he won the Economics Nobel in 2015. The chat begins with the reasons he got into economics in the first place and his lifelong habit of using techniques that he borrowed from the other social sciences. Then, we talk about some of his methodological innovations from a few decades ago, which we ask him to break down for an audience of non-PhDs like us. And then finally, we get into his enormous contributions to development economics, his work in India, his skepticism of foreign aid and randomized control trials, his thoughts on behavioral economics, personal stories about a letter he once received from Robert Solo and his friendship with Danny Kahneman, and finally, his reasons for cautious long-term optimism. As you can tell, Angus has had a rich and varied career, and he was a real delight to speak with. Here it is. So first of all, thanks for doing this so soon after the prize. It's a uh, pleasure. I really appreciate it. Uh, my first question is, is, how are you handling the flood of attention that's come washing <laughs> over you ever since? Mostly with enormous pleasure, actually. It's, really? Um, yeah. It's really nice to have an opportunity to talk to people I wouldn't have otherwise met. And I'm sure as anyone who ever gets an award like this will tell you, you hear from people you haven't heard from in 40 or 50 years. Right. And that's a real treat too. And those are the ones, those are the emails I'm answering. <laughs> a lot of the others, you know. A lot of the, the, the ones from people coming out of the woodwork, you mean, that you haven't heard from. Yes. Because I think, oh my goodness, what are you doing, you know, and where have you been? Well, your, your career spans across vast territory, both intellectual, but also more straightforwardly geographical territory as well. I mean, yeah. a lot of your studies have been based uh, in a lot of different developing countries. Mm -hmm. Did it go about how you expected when you started out, or did it take a lot of surprising twists and turns? That's a really good question. I, I could reimagine it and say that I had it all laid out when I start, you know, but that's that wouldn't really be true at all, or it certainly wasn't, it wouldn't be descriptive of what I felt like at the time. So, I mean, I stumbled into economics really by accident, and it took me quite a while before I realized that this was something I really wanted to do. And that came with understanding that, you know, I could do it so that, you know, I could do things that people liked or something. And also it was giving me a lot of pleasure, and it seemed to tie into the sort of things I wanted to do, but it was entirely accidental. Well, how was it accidental? Well, I mean, I went to Cambridge, you know, I, in my high school, which is for your British readers, public school. Right. Um, the um, I did a lot of math. I did mathematics as my main subjects, but that was really because it gave me a lot of time to do other things like play rugby or play music or spend time with my friends or do all the sort of good things in life. And when I got to Cambridge, I discovered that mathematics is a lot more serious um, than that. And having a good time with all my friends, which is what I did for the first two years, actually got in the way <laughs> of getting decent grades in mathematics. So it became clear at the end of my second year at Cambridge that um, mathematics and I were long overdue for parting. And um, so I went to see my senior tutor, my tutor in my college, to try and decide what I was going to do. And he said, well, you could leave. That's perhaps the most obvious option. And I thought, 
my dad, who struggled so hard in his life to get an education, would be devastated if I did that. So I said, okay, I think I'll stay one more year and try to get a degree. And I said, well, what will I do? And he said, well, there's only one thing for people like you. It's called <laughs> economics. And I said, okay. It was called it economics. There's only one thing left for people who didn't want to do math and wanted to spend some weren't time very with good friends, at it. Right? Yeah. Um, and so actually I, I had a wonderful job that summer. I haven't thought of that for ages. I had a job. Um, there used to be a store, I think it's now a bookstore, um, called Simpsons of Piccadilly. Um, Simpsons of Piccadilly. Piccadilly. Yeah. And I think it's a Waterstones or a big bookstore just down for Piccadilly Circus on Piccadilly. And I got a summer job there selling clothes. But I wasn't doing it in the store. I was doing it on board the Queen Elizabeth and the Queen Mary. And we went back and forward all summer yeah. um, from Southampton to New York, which is the first time I ever came to America. And um, they told me to buy a copy of Samuelson's text. Paul Samuelson. Yes, Paul Samuelson's text. And in between selling clothes and business was slow from time to time. Um, I would sit there with Samuelson's text open on the counter in front of me and read through it. And I thought it was terrific from day one. Sure. Paul Samuelson, one of the giants of 20th century century economics. But, I mean, also that was a terrific book. It still is. I'm sure it's been superseded by later textbooks. But it was just a wonderful, wonderful book. And it was sort of like, my goodness, I'm doing this sort of as a punishment, but it isn't punishment at all. It's it's terrific fun. What I would have guessed was that you were attracted to the potential real-world application of something like economics, whereas with mathematics – you might have been worried that it would stay in the realm of the theoretical um, because that's been a big theme of your own career, which is sort of the, the tension and the overlaps and the relationship between yep. theory and the real world and empirical work. I think that's right. I'm, I'm not sure I felt that then, um, though it may well. I'm, I'm sure once again I could revisit the past and right. say, well, I was tired of the formal abstraction of mathematics. Um, the mathematics certainly stood me in very good stead because um, it helps and always has helped. Um, it's also true that I really like to write, and I discovered that in my the first year I spent studying economics. And Cambridge, after all, has the system where you write essays every week, and someone reads them and talks about them. And that, for me, turned out to be an enormous pleasure, too. Okay. So the writing part of this has always been really important to me. But what you said about the abstraction, I think, is more... Later in, in my life, I've always worried that, but it's true throughout my career, I've always worried that academics sort of get into very, very narrow circles where they're chasing each other around on some very narrow topic. And they never ask the question as to whether that topic is of any general interest or right. not. Um, because there's lots of scientific meaning, you know, mathematical fun or whatever in solving the puzzles within this thing. And people don't always step back to find out whether that's really important. And, of course, that's often very hard to tell. You, you know, some things that seem like they're not very important will turn out to be quite important. And I certainly always give myself a lot of slack in terms of if I thought something was intellectually interesting or something that smart people knew about and used, I would go and try to learn that. Like I spent a long time learning time series analysis, sort of mid-career somewhere, just to find out what it was for. Sure. It's been very useful. Sure, and uh, tinkering with different methodological approaches has Absolutely. also been a big prominent part of your career. Here's what I want to I want to try to do. I want to spend some time doing. I want to try to explain to a general audience of laymen, of people like me who don't have a scholarly or a formal background in economics, uh, the work that you won the Nobel Prize for. You actually won it for 
a series of things, not just one thing. So I thought we would just take them in order okay. and try to get at what it was and why it was meaningful. Does that sound good? Okay. Okay. Let's start I like with- the word tinkering you used, incidentally, which okay. I think is a very good description of a lot of what I do. Of your career, of tinkering with different things. And trying to make them better and understand them and pull them apart. Okay. Yeah. So the first thing you want it for, okay, something called the almost ideal demand system. I got to tell you, you economists are terrible at labeling things in a way that makes them immediately interesting to a general audience because I think half of our listeners just scattered to the next podcast when I said that. But actually, it is very interesting and it's very important. Before we talk about it, why don't you address what specific problem you were tackling at the time? What gap in economics uh, you were trying to fill when you were coming up with the almost ideal demand system? Okay, so when I first um, started working as an economist as opposed to a student, I actually spent 13 miserable months in the Bank of England before I got a chance to go back to Cambridge as sort of research assistant. And um, I was working for uh, the person who'd hired me there, got a job somewhere else and went away. So I was left to play, as it were. And that's when I really met Richard Stone. And Richard Stone had always worked on what is called demand analysis, which is just trying to understand. Oh, sorry, called the what? Called demand analysis demand is analysis. what we call it in the field. But demand analysis just means trying to understand consumer spending patterns and how they respond to prices and changes in income and other factors, right. like demographic factors, like do people with different family sizes spend in different ways. Okay. And, you know, Richard Stone had worked on that in Cambridge since, I don't know, the early 50s. And he had a, a project there, which was a big model, and it was a planning model. Do you remember? You're too young to remember planning. <laughs> but Britain was sort of into planning in the 60s when the Harold Wilson government came to power. And there mm-hmm. was a thing called NEDI, which was the, some council of um, industry and government and George Brown and people were sort of into this planning stuff. And these had models which are not like the big Keynesian macroeconomic models. They're more like long-term. So it's sort of cross between market economics and Soviet planning models. And this was a big model with different parts of the economy. And each of us on the team was assigned to a different part of the model. So my part of the model was to work on consumer spending and how it was allocated across different goods and how it would change with response to prices. So, so in other words, how, how people choose to spend money on apples versus wood versus uh, kangaroo versus anything else. Yeah, um, I don't think we quite got down to the kangaroo <laughs> stage. But it might be more food versus motor cars. Okay. Motor cars were a big item because in those days, again, this is old British policy. It was the days of stop-go, and the Chancellor of the Exchequer used to put higher purchase controls on the purchases of cars and things. So that was something we were interested in. Okay. So a lot of it is, you know, consumption is a big part of the economy. The distribution over goods has a big effect on, you know, who's going to be employed in various sectors. And it also the levers that government has, which is taxes and higher purchase um, things and controls that they had at that point. So I'd had a long-term interest in trying to discover how you could model this and and sort of building pretty simple mathematical models of if you put some prices in, you put some incomes in, put some demographics in, what would you expect the pattern of demand? No, so how much, so the the variables are how much money people make, right? How the prices of certain goods fluctuate. And then in response to that, how would they change how many, how much of food they eat or how much of food they buy versus 
how many cars they buy exactly. versus the kind of car, that kind of thing. You got it. Okay. So what's what was the inadequacy of the model at the time that you identified and that you wanted to fix? Well, the the first inadequacy was that Richard Stone had invented this thing called the linear expenditure system, which is a very famous model of this sort. Um, it was hard to estimate. So the first thing that I tackled when I got there was I thought these guys don't really know how to estimate this thing. Um, so I went to the engineering library and led up on read up on computational algorithms for oh boy design yeah okay we're off off in space now <laughs> but i was sort of very proud of that that you know i was always prepared to go into another discipline yeah. and find a tool that would enable me to do this so we sort of cracked that and then i played with this linear expenditure system for a long time and it turned out that it was it couldn't accommodate all sorts of behaviors that you thought maybe ought to be there right now, again, you have to go back to, this is 1969 or 1970, I'm doing this. So, you know, the data we had were post-war annual data for the UK, which means, you know, when things had settled down and rationing had gone away, you were talking from like 1955 onwards. Yeah. So nowadays we work with millions and millions of observations. You know, then we had 14 right. observations, okay? So if you're going to try to tell a story about this, you've got to put a lot of structure on it because you only have a little data to estimate these points. So it's sort of like, it's almost like you've got a Christmas tree and you're using the data to hang decorations on it yeah. or something. And there's not, the data's not getting to speak very much. So one of the things I got interested in there, and I've always been interested in, is when you've got empirical results, you're looking at the data, you're fitting models, the things economists do all the time. Um, how much of what you're getting is actually something you put in there? It's like assumption. Right. as it were, and how much of it is actually what the data says mm -hmm. in some sense. And juggling those two things has been a sort of life, lifetime interest and obsession almost with me. So what we were trying to do was build something that was simple um, and that allowed a much more flexible ability for the data to speak. Sure. And one of the things you'd also like to do in demand analysis is that you just don't want you know, the price of apples to affect the demand for apples. You might want the price of pears to have some effect on the price of apples. Right. Or, so it doesn't know. just matter how the price of the specific good you're studying changes. It also matters how the prices of all other goods change. That's right. And so that's a pretty complicated thing because if you've got a thousand goods, there's a thousand by a thousand, you know, a million possible what we call cross-price responses, meaning the response of one good to another good's right. um, price. So we were wrestling with that. Now, the other thing that happened at the same time, there was a major theoretical revolution that was going on in consumer theory, in the theory of consumer demand, which is what came to be known as duality. And this was a way of just mathematically formalizing this. And there were only a few people working on this at this time. So Sorry, it's called duality, and it was a way of mathematically formalizing what? Demand. So instead of thinking, I mean, let me give you a key idea. The way that we often think of a demand, the way consumers demand things, is you have a utility function, and all these quantities you buy go into this. You get the quantity of apple, the quantity of pears, and all the rest of it. And then you weight those together and see how happy that makes you, right. which is a utility function. But of course, if you're out there in the market and you're buying 
all these things at a set of prices, one for each of these things, then basically if you know someone's income and you know all the prices, you can plug that into the utility function and you get utility not so much as a function of the quantities you buy, but of the prices and incomes that are out there. And so that was called the dual approach. And there was a lot of mathematics went with that that had been pioneered by Dan McFadden, who got the Nobel Prize maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and also there was a very eccentric, wonderful, lovable genius in Britain called Terence Gorman. Um, and Terence Gorman was an impenetrable Irishman um, who thought everyone was smarter than him. And so he would make things as complicated as possible because he thought if you couldn't understand what he was saying, it was because he was being too simple and he would complicate <laughs> it. So John Muelbar, who I worked with then and who'd really worked, he'd been a student of Dan McFadden's indirectly at Berkeley, but had got a job at Birkbeck in London when Birkbeck Economics Department first opened. Um, and I I don't quite know how we first met, but I think we'd had common friends in Berkeley. And then we realized that we both had ends of a little piece of this new approach to consumer right. theory um, called duality theory. So then we started playing with that. And I think we were just kids, right? I mean, we were I was 24 years old, 25 years old. Or so. No, maybe a little older than that. Um, not much um, when we were doing this. Um, and we thought that we were the only people who sort of understood this. And apart from impenetrable people like Dan McFadden or Terence Corman, we probably were. And we could explain it to people. So that was a big part of us part of what we were doing, which is how eventually we came to write the Deaton and Muelbar textbook, which right. takes that approach and explains, and still is pretty widely used oh. as a textbook for price theory okay. and so on, based on this approach. But at the same time, we wanted to use it for things. And one of the great things that duality approach made easier was you could build models based on it, um, which gave you a much more direct approach to deriving theoretically consistent models of the way people behaved. Okay. So we played with that for a long time, and we tinkered with it for a long time. And the almost ideal demand system, um, which was especially unfortunately named because we called it the AIDS <laughs> and there was no – that term had not been used for anything right, else right. at that point. Um, that we, we had many, many, many um, – trial versions of this and and it was sort of like building a motor car or something and um, it's called almost ideal because of course we were looking for the ideal system and it turns out you can't get the ideal system but we got a lot of moving parts that sort of worked and went through many many versions and we tinkered with it and then we got this system which is still as far as I can see enormously widely used um, as a sort of work tool. And it spawned a big literature of people trying to improve it, trying yeah. to fill in the gaps, trying to, or in, or just using it for their own I think in the studies. antitrust literature, for instance, it's, I get a case. How is it used in the antitrust literature? Well, you, you maybe have a better idea than I do, but okay. I mean, the, the, what they're doing is the people in the Justice Department who do antitrust things are, have to use demand systems, you know, they have to model consumers part of what they're doing. And they have to think if this firm had not raised prices in some illegitimate way, what would have happened and how much would have hurt consumers. And this is an ideal tool 
or it's right. almost ideal tool right, right. Um, for doing that sort of thing. And because it's theory consistent, we put a huge weight on these things being theory consistent. But the nice thing about being theory consistent is you can address the welfare implications of these antitrust violations or of prices or of government How it affects actual people, you mean? Yes, but I mean, remember, I I said that this derives back to some sort of utility at the end. So you can sort of say, you know, if you raise a price, how much, what's the equivalent income that people would give up to avoid that price rise? Right. So then you can look at all sorts of policies. You can actually, if you're doing an antitrust thing, you can say, well, you know, this monopoly, monopolistic or anti-competitive um, behavior, um, that is affecting um, people's behavior. And you can calculate what the compensation is. So you have the basis for a legal argument, which says, right. you know, how much these firms did this bad thing, how much did it hurt people? Well, it might be a billion dollars. It might just be a few thousands. And that can potentially give you an answer to that question. So if the price of cable television goes from $10 to $100 because right. of monopolistic behavior on the part of the cable companies, then that might affect how much money you have left to spend on other items, on other household goods, including some things that might actually be pretty important, staples. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. So, I mean, one way you can think about that is if, if you know, it's $10 a week more for each individual, and there's a million individuals buying that particular service, the first cut would be it's $10 million harm that it's causing them. And, of course, that's a bit too much because if the price is higher, they'll substitute away to other things. And, you know, if they can substitute very easily into some other form of cable television, not harming them very much, whereas if they can't substitute, it's really hammering them. It's like taxing the price of salt or something, you know, which you can't get away from. Um, And the model would tell you that in a fairly convenient way. Okay. So that's the almost ideal demand system. That's the almost ideal. If I've understood it correctly, this was a more sophisticated, more nuanced way of understanding how people choose which goods to consume in response to either they're making more money or changes in the prices of those goods or of other goods in the economy overall. That's right. right. Let's go slick. Right. I mean, and that you could use it very easily. Yes. And just one other thing that might be worth saying, because John Mirabar had done all this work before I ever met him on looking at aggregation. And this um, allows the distribution of income to come into that system right. too, which was something that it always worried us a lot that that wasn't there. This is a big theme underlying almost all of your work, yeah. which is the importance of getting as granular as possible, of understanding individual and household behavior, uh, and then using that to find out how an economy will perform in aggregate, right? Uh, in the past, it wasn't always clear that you had to do that. It was thought that whatever the aggregate behavior was, however an economy as a whole reacted, was how individuals also reacted, and this was just a reflection of that. Your point is that because different people within a society, within an economy, have different circumstances, well, actually, they're going to react differently, which sounds like a common sense thing, but at the time was difficult to model. Correct. It's always difficult to model, and um, it, it's also true to remember that y- you didn't have there wasn't just an enormous amount of data. Um, and macroeconomics is about shortcuts, <laughs> you know. So if you take a really purest view of macroeconomics and say 
if we, we can't do macroeconomics and we'll have understood perfectly every single agent in the economy, you'll be here until the end of time and you'll never get anywhere. And, you know, the Treasury Secretary has to make decisions or Ben Bernanke has to make decisions. And so you've got some shortcut understanding. So sort of modeling the whole economy as if it was a single consumer was a fairly natural shortcut and built some theory and allowed right. you to do this thing. And we'd always worried about that. And I think one of the main motivating forces of my book with John Muir and it carried on into my life subsequently, was, you know, that might be just really dangerous. And there may be changes in distribution of income that are going on which make that fallacious and you just get the wrong answer. And, of course, as the distribution of income has changed so dramatically over the last 20, 30, 40 years, that's become a much more salient fact than it was in the 70s right. when we were working on right. this. And that's also, I think, a natural segue to the second item for which you won the prize. Okay. Um, this is slightly different from what we just talked about in that in talking about the almost ideal demand system, we're assuming uh, that people have a given amount of money that they're going to spend. And then the question is, well, how do they spend between different goods, different items in the economy? Okay. But you also did a lot of work trying to understand how people choose how much of their money to spend versus how much of their money to save, how it changes over time, and how people in different circumstances react differently then to new circumstances, to changes to their income, to changes in prices. And that led you eventually to something called the Deaton Paradox. You have a paradox named after you. I have a paradox named after me. Yes. Uh, so why don't you take us through that work and then explain to us what the Deaton Paradox is. Right. Well, once again, you know, the, the study of spending and saving was something that Dick Stone had worked on. And so, like a lot of my life, I've been sort of imitating him. You know? Probably your, <laughs> your most profound influence, I think, as you've described him. Um, very much so. I mean, the other one, I think, was probably March's son um, okay. and his emphasis on ethics and yeah. thinking about that. A lot of philosophical be, writing. Yes. And also that, you know, trying to bring some philosophy and welfare economics back into economics in a way that seems to have sort of vanished um, altogether, much to its detriment, I think. Um, so anyway, and the other thing that's good to say is the savings enormously important um, because for most people, you know, you're going to retire, you're going to get old, you're going to need money when you when you can't work anymore. And if you don't save during your working life, that's going to be a huge problem for you. So th this is like a major issue. Also, in the macro economy, anything to do with pensions and saving is just of the, and Social Security is of the absolute first order of importance. Sure. So that understanding, these are certainly big issues. Um, so no one's ever going to know deny the importance of these issues. And they've been central in macroeconomics, at least since Keynes and, and perhaps um, even before that. So again, I mean, when I was way back in the Cambridge Growth Project, which was the Stone Project in Cambridge when I was a research assistant, this was part of my job, which was to think about these things. So this stuff was always going on um, sort of in parallel. So one of, let me then creep up towards the, Creep up the, towards spending the versus paradox, saving. Sure. Which is for spending versus saving. So Milton Friedman and and, um, and Franco Medigliani in the 50s had had this sort of insight, a really important insight in one shape or form, 
that you know your income fluctuates a lot, um, but your spending doesn't fluctuate nearly as much. And uh, you know, there's a bit of it that's just so trite as to be obvious. You know, we all spent money today on lunch or breakfast or something. Most of us didn't get paid today, so you know the payment is um, bunched weekly or monthly or yearly or whatever. But your savings sort of smooth out um, over the time. And Medigliani very explicitly did that of smoothing out over the life cycle, that there are periods in your life when you earn a lot, periods when you earn a little, but you want your consumption to be relatively smooth. So the, the more the macroeconomic part of that was this idea that, okay, over the business cycle, income fluctuates rather a lot. So, you know, it'll go up in the boom, it'll flatten out at the top, and it may even slow down or reverse um, during the recession. And so if you plot a graph of that, I mean, it goes up with sort of ratchet um, of course, types yeah. of fact. Uh, but if you plot the graph of consumption against that, um, consumption pretty much goes straight through the middle because people are going consuming. So the story that people would tell of that would be essentially um, in terms of, say, the Friedman story, um, which is when your income goes up in the boom, people realize that some of that's temporary. And so they save it for the rainy day that's going to follow the slump. And so they can use that to smooth out their consumption. Right. And in the Brumberg version, um, you know, when you're in middle age and you're the peak of your earnings, you're earning a lot of money, but you know this is not going to last. And so you save some of it and smooth it out over time. The so, flip side of that, of course, by the way, is that in bad times, people recognize if they believe it's temporary that later on they'll make more money than they are now, so they'll still keep spending, whether that well, means you know borrowing money or whatever. Right. Well, that actually leads us into this sort of paradox because if you, again, take this simple-minded view that the economy is a single agent and there's one person facing this, you think of this economy looking at this single agent facing the macro economy and seeing the beginning of the boom um, coming on. And so you could ask, well, when they see an increase in income, what does that tell them about the future? Well, that was around the time I got an interest in time series analysis. And the guys who'd been doing the time series analysis had taken this relatively recent work on time series and said, okay, let's apply it to macroeconomic aggregates. And we can see how these things behave. And if you actually look at these series, um, it, it's mostly when you get an increase in income, it tells you there's even more increase in income to come in the future. Um, and so, I mean, the, the simplest case is when income is just going up with a trend and it's bumping around like that, then that's what is technically called a random walk with trend. I mean, it's sort of like the way the stock market behaves. Um, and if you have a random walk with trend, then basically any increase, you can't do better than say that increase will be reproduced the next period. Um, and so you wouldn't ever smooth your consumption. You just spend everything you have. Okay. Right? Now, on the other hand, it's actually a little worse than that because if you look at the data, when you see your income going up, that actually signals a further increase. Um, and, you know, it dies away eventually. But each bit of growth. So when the economy jumps up like that, people should do exactly what you said before, which mm -hmm. is they should actually spend more than um, they their income has gone up, in which case, if you plotted out income and consumption together, consumption should actually be much noisier. I mean, it should, right. as income ratchets, the ratchet on consumption should even be larger. And that's not what we see in the data. In fact, these theories were precisely thought up to account for the opposite of that. And so people got very upset. 
when I sort of came along and said, well, what, wait a minute, it doesn't imply the natural that consequence of those theories is that in fact, the changes in consumption and how people spend money should be what you call nonlinear, right? Noisier. Noisier, right? It should fluctuate more. Even more than income. Than income, than the money they're making. And I remember it's still a a searing experience for me um, that I went and gave a talk. I think it was at the World Bank, and there were people there. And there was a guy there, a very, very distinguished economist who I won't name. Um, Oh, come on. You just no, won the no. Nobel Prize. You've got all the credibility in the world. <laughs> this guy was a very, very distinguished senior <laughs> okay. economist. And he got furious with me. And he said, you know, if that's the best you can do, you should go and work on something else. This is the most ridiculous thing <laughs> I ever heard of. So he was just outraged that something he would believed all his life was couldn't be true. Or at least he believed two things that right. seemed to explain each other and which, in fact, turned out to be contradictory. Sort of contradictory. Yeah. So the answer to that, of course, is, I mean, in some sense, is pretty obvious, um, which is you shouldn't be doing this at the aggregate level. Um, because if you go down to individual households, then, you know, there's no real paradox. Because if Joe the plumber or whatever he's called, you know, got a big job yeah. this year, um, he knows that he's not going to get a big job next year. You know, for him, it doesn't work in the way it works in the macro economy, because he just got a big job. Some friend built a house. He got the plumbing contract. He made more this year than he's ever made. Um, That might lead to some increase again next year, but he's not going to have a banner year again next year. So he's going to save quite a lot of it. So at that level, the Friedman-Medigliani thing works just perfectly. There's no problem with it at all. And so that intuition is basically correct, and nothing I said would threaten that. The issue is that when you take a time series like income, the individual time series, when you average them up to the whole economy, don't give the same result anymore. And that was the sort of root of, of the problem in some okay. sense. So that and you can see that, you know, Joe Plummer might have got a you know a really great contract this year. Um but you know, Jamie the fisherman <laughs> had a really bad year this year. So that when you add it, all that noise sort of goes away when you get up to the aggregate right. economy. Okay. So it was just sort of making people think um, that. And it's very interesting. Around that same time, I got a letter, I think I must still have somewhere, which was one of the nicest letters I ever received in my life, which was from Bob Solo, who, as you know, is a hero to everybody in the economics sure. profession. Everyone would be like to Bob Solo. And I was sitting over there in my office. Robert Solo, um, by the way, who also has a paradox named after him. The uh, uh, computer age can be seen everywhere except in the productivity, the productivity. statistics. Yeah, That's right. But Bob Solow was the guy, you know, who started growth theory, who's, you know, uh, the man. Um, And he wrote me this letter, which just started off, you know, and I barely knew who he was. And it was signed Bob Solow. And it said, Dear Angus, this letter is a fan letter. (laughs) And he'd read this paper and just wanted me to know how wonderful it was. So, you know, there there were people who yelled at me, but there were people who didn't yell at me. Right. And so... It, you know, getting that sort of approbation at a point that was sort of the midpoint in my career or something was very important to me. So th- this is another example of where there is a contradiction or at least a seeming contradiction between the aggregate level data and the individual or household level data. And I guess my question is this. Do you think that this problem has either been resolved and if not completely resolved, do you think that economists are doing an increasingly better job of realizing that it's more important to take microeconomic data and build that up to macroeconomic conclusions than they did uh, when you were coming up with this stuff 20 or 30 years ago? 
I, I think the latter is certainly true. I'm, I'm not sure it's been resolved or that it's resolvable. But it's certainly a much more, and you know, I was not the only person doing this by any manner of means, but it's certainly become a much more central part of macroeconomics that people are using um, individual data to think about the way the macroeconomy works. And the plentifulness of data, the ease of computation have all played a role in that. And, you know, maybe what we were doing pushed it along a little bit too. But it's certainly, um, that's much, that's the way a lot of macro guys practice. No, right. Not all of them. The resolvability is hard because in the end, and I think this is a bit interesting, that when John Muehlbar and I wrote our book, I think we thought that if we did the aggregation right, it would turn out that the theory really worked on the data and that aggregation thinking of the individuals as, as well as the macro was what had sort of gone wrong. And that if we did that right, we'd be doing something like with a predictive power of physics or something and that we, we, everything would fit the data. So that bit of the, I think it was very good and important to do this. I'm not sure that I'm as optimistic about that program <laughs> as I w would have been in the 70s, okay. for instance. When so, it looked like that was going to be uh, an inevitability. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's. I think people are now much more open to other ways of behavior. The whole behavioral economics movement sure. has suggested that people are not behaving in those very simple models that we used to think. Yeah, we're can, just axiomatic. Can I ask you to elaborate a little bit on that? Because it, it sounds like from your work on the almost ideal demand system and in the Deaton hypothesis that actually some of your findings are fairly consistent with straightforward rational expectations. Yeah. Um, and yet you said that behavioral economics has something to add, that it's very interesting. And I guess I'm wondering what you think is either the tension or the complementarities between those two things, how you approach Thinking about that. I think there's been both tension and complementarities. I, mean, I was very fortunate that when we first moved into this building, I had Danny Kahneman in the office next to me. Danny Kahneman, the fa yeah. famous uh, behavioral economist, of yeah. course. Or really Nobel is, Prize win winner for uh, behavioral psychology, actually. I guess, well, right? or he's a, it's a, for a Nobel Prize in economics. <laughs> for economics, but, but he's a psychologist. Danny right? doesn't really believe in economics. I mean, he's a psychologist <laughs> through and through. And he really thinks that psychology should sort of colonize economics. Okay. Which, which is is fine, um, and arguing with Danny over the years has just been wonderful because we have very different ways of seeing the world, and my tribe and his tribe just go at things very very differently. I think it's clear that what Danny um, got the prize for, and it's a really wonderful thing, was sort of making economists rethink that in a very serious way. And I think it's been enormously productive. I mean, Rethinking the, rational expectations and consumer behavior. Yes, or, behavior or, or just how people behave in generally and whether they do look into the future and how they look into the future and all the biases that people make. And you can get people to do things that are really stupid and that are not in their self-interest at all. And so all the simple models that we worked on for years and years, you know, come apart at the edges. Now, the question is how much? And also you lose a lot if you go unreservedly down that route because all this stuff I talked about before in which we could use the way people behave to say what's good for them, that's all gone out of the window too because if people don't really behave in a way that's naturally good for them, yeah. you have a real problem in measuring their well-being and you have all sorts of problems with public policy, which is what the... Um, what's it called? The paternalistic, the um, libertarian, nudge. the yeah. nudge philosophy is, is all about is trying to sort of address these right. questions without 
you know, just because you, you know, eat an extra chocolate cake that you didn't mean to eat. Right. You don't necessarily want to be taken over by the government <laughs> who right. will do a better job for it. So facing up to those issues. So I think it's been enormously productive. The tensions are not resolved. And somehow, and I think this is the research work for the next 20 years, um, which is somehow bringing those things together and getting welfare economics back. Right. Somehow, So there, there's some amazing work being done on that. I mean, I think, for instance, the work that David Leibson at Harvard has done on default options, for instance, is really changing the world. So is this, is this uh, the idea that, for instance, if a company automatically contributes to your pension fund, you won't opt to switch it out so that you save less money, whereas if they didn't contribute to it in the first place and gave you the option of opting in, you're less likely to do it. So you end up saving more money, even though you still technically have the choice of whether or not to That's save exactly that money. Right. Okay. And this was really started by Richard Taylor, um, who worked very closely with Danny. So Richard Taylor was in some ways Danny's entree into the economics profession. And Richard Taylor had this Save More Tomorrow scheme in which you sign up. You don't have to save more today, but you promise that when you get your next pay rise, some chunk of it will automatically be saved. And it had huge positive effects on people's savings. And they were very happy about it when they looked at it retrospectively. And David Leibson has extended this to a whole bunch of places and design schemes. And it's sort of like when you show up at your employer for the first time, when I first showed up here, you have to decide how to allocate your pension contributions between the bond fund and the um, and the um, equity fund. And... You know, it turns out that if you design that default differently, which is you go into the equity fund unless you opt out, or you go into the bond fund unless you opt out, it has remarkably large effects on people's behavior. Yeah, I guess it, it seems to me like both recognizing the limits of both ideas and also trying to understand how they interact sort of requires a tremendous dose of humility. Yeah. Um, that seems to be one of the other themes that runs consistently through your work, you often finish your papers and your books with a sort of plea for more work, right? You often say yourself, I'm agnostic on this. I don't know where this is going to lead us. Right. Um, do you think economists in general need to do a better job of acknowledging the limits of what can be known uh, in within their profession? Well, I'm not sure I wouldn't. Um, impose my preferences on other people. I mean, I think, the, you know, there's a social mechanism here that works. Even if each individual is completely convinced they're right, um, the profession as a whole can move um, because there's, you know, those ideas are warring and there's impartial spectators, as it were, who favor one set of ideas than another, right. like the next generation of students. So I don't think it really matters. That, I don't think it's destructive of the science if people are too sure they're right. And sometimes, actually, people will make great step. You have to be completely bigoted and pig-headed sometimes <laughs> to follow a set of ideas through to the logical conclusion, which a sort of more nuanced person like me might have not been willing to do. And yet there there might be real gold at the end of that rainbow right. sort of idea. And, and some people are very dedicated, right. um, often um, sort of do that. But, I mean, the behavioral thing is not done yet. And I tend to be a very contrarian sort of person. So when I hear a dedicated behavioral person talk, I'll say, but, 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 that's crazy. You know, people don't do that. And on the other hand, when I hear a dedicated sort of Chicago economist saying, you know, people are always acting 
in, deliberately in their own self-interest. I said, that's got to be nuts too. Right. So, you know, we've got to somehow build the bridges across there and take out the nutty bits on both sides. You know, people do do very far-sighted, deliberate things like they plan for their pensions, you know, and but they don't necessarily do it right. Okay. And you know, there's a lot of big issues hang on that, like Social Security and everything to do with it. So there's a lot of work still to be done. Okay. <laughs> Says um, he's signing like the end of one of his papers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, okay, uh, the third thing uh, that you won the prize for, uh, your contributions to understanding development economics, the well-being of people uh, in poverty, the well-being of people in developing countries. Um, let's start with measurement. Right, which, as you said earlier, has been an obsession of yours. Okay, um, panel studies versus pseudo panels. The latter one is your idea. So there are panels, and there are problems with studying things using panels. And then you came up with something called pseudo panels to replace it. Take us through that. Okay, I think it was um, the pseudo panels. I was I'd invented because I didn't have any panel data. <laughs> okay, you know. what's, so, what 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 is a panel first? Well, a panel is just where you follow people through time. So the the same you, people, the same people, exactly. So, you know, they're often done in consumer studies, or there's a famous one in the United States called the Panel Study of Income Dynamics, in which you know you go see the same people every year and you ask them what they've been doing in that year, what their jobs are like, how much money they've earned, what they spent. You can change the questions over time, but you're tracking people over a very, very long period right. of time, and you're tracking the same people. And so that's the only way you can look at changes in behavior from one person to another over time. It was also called the panel study of income dynamics because if you want to ask questions about whether, you know, how many people who are at the bottom of the income distribution ever spend any time at the top, um, you have to follow individuals over time, for right. instance. So there's lots of things you can only do with panel data. Um, I didn't have any panel data when I was playing with that, but our models called for tracking people over time. So what I'd realized was if you had, as was fairly standard in rich countries and poor countries, and I think the first data I probably used it on was British data, you have a standing household survey which reselects different people every year. So most of the big U.S. surveys are like that, the, cons the um, consumer expenditure survey, the current population survey. I mean, sometimes people are seen multiple times over a short period of time, but basically you're renewing the whole survey ab about once a year. So what I'd realized is, is, you know, you can't see the same person except by the smallest chance, you know, that Angus Deaton would be in the same survey in two successive years. Um, because you're picking maybe 50,000 people out of a population of 300 million or something. Um, but what you could do is if you took a birth cohort, um, and a birth cohort meaning all the people born in 1945, right. for instance. So, for instance, if you had the 1970 survey, you could look at all people who were aged 25 years old in the 1970 survey, and they were all born in 1945. Then you get the 1971 survey, and you could look at all the people who are 26 years old who were the same people. And so you, you can, tr and if you average those, um, and the averaging is now very much under your control rather than the whole macroeconomy, um, you can track a group of people um, by random sampling from them over time. So you can think of this birth cohort just aging through the population, and you dip randomly into them every okay. year, 
and the average if you've got a big enough sample you know just the usual sampling thing sure. um, you can follow that birth cohort over time and for some purposes that will do a lot of the things you want to do for panel data and in particular we the sort of life cycle and savings and consumption models that we were looking at at that time could be very well handled using those sure. techniques. Yeah, I guess I guess the way I understood it was that let's say you wanted to track how people save and spend their money throughout a long period of time, that the problem with panel data is that a lot of people will drop out of the panel. And the problem with that is that there are reasons that they dropped out of the panel and those reasons inform what it is that you're trying to study. You need to know those reasons. But if they're no longer in the panel, you lose the ability to keep tracking them. And that's the problem. And it sounds like from what you're, you're saying just, that... You've just given a wonderful definition of what we call endogenous attrition. Right. <laughs> endogenous <laughs> attrition. Yeah, right. exactly. Um, and pseudo panels, right, by dipping randomly into these cohorts, average out that behavior that you would have been losing in the panel studies. And now you've got... The data you want, and actually, you—I think you've said that it's not just—it's uh, not just easier to measure. In some cases, it's actually better than if you had been able to study the panels. In some cases, not all cases. Okay. Um, the other thing about it is because of standard sampling technique, you can figure out how much an error is involved in these estimates you're looking at. So, which is not always true in panel data. Okay. Um, it's not perfect though, because if you follow this birth cohort, eventually they get old, and some of them leave the country, or some of them <laughs> right. die, or some of them go to jail, and <laughs> they're not going to show up in your right. sampling anymore. And as people get older, which for some of these savings models is a very serious issue, because right. you're interested in what happens in old age, then you have to worry about that in a in a sort of serious way. Um, the other thing is the thing I talked about with the panel study of income dynamics. You know, who was at the bottom? And what fraction of the bottom 10% of the population is in a not? You can't do that with these sort of panel data. At some point, you started studying this idea that there's a relationship between uh, how many calories people get, how much they're able to eat, and then how productive they are. Um, and there's a sort of longstanding idea that if people trapped in poverty can't get enough to eat, then they won't have the energy to do productive work, which means they can't make any money, which keeps them from eating more calories, right? It's a trap. Okay, it's, it's called a, the poverty, the poverty trap, the poverty you just trap. described it right. perfectly. Uh, you found that actually it's not so simple that maybe the causal direction goes the other way. Um, can you sort of explain what your conclusions yeah, were I mean, in studying the, that? There's a lot, there was a lot of formal analysis in there, but the key point for us was that um, you could buy, and it's in one of the papers, so I may get this number wrong, so is that you could buy enough calories to get by in a day for about 5% of a day wage, even in the poorest parts of rural India. So it was just totally implausible that people were trapped in that trap. Because it's sort of like, you know, if you can get out of that trap, then everything's sort of okay. So if you had an, what you do, someone who was in that trap would be spend every single rupee you had on the cheapest possible calories until you're well enough nourished to look after your family and get a job and things. Because then you're out of the trap, mm -hmm. right? So it has to be true for people to be locked into that trap that enough calories to get you out of the trap um, are expensive, are more expensive than you can spend by working incredibly hard for a few days to the point where you get out of it. And so we just found, and we just didn't really see any evidence of that in there. 
Um, but it's very complicated. And in more recent work, I mean, there's this paradox, which they actually didn't cite in the prize, so maybe you want to not talk about this, okay. is that you know there's been all this very rapid growth in India, but calorie per capita consumption is going down, even though half of all children in India are, are malnourished. And for us, that's you know one of the, that's the sort of paradox I love. I mean, it's tremendously important because here's all this economic growth going on. Here are all these kids; they're not starving, but they're not getting enough to eat, and they're not growing as fast as they should. And they're probably brains are probably not developing. And you know, I mean, India may have to be taking over the world already, but wait until all these kids get properly nourished. Um, you know, really release their brain power. And so this seemed like a first-order question, and, and it was not at all clear to us. And it's still, I mean, we have it's still some... It's still unclear, it's why, still that, unclear why, that's why that's happening. But I suspect part of it is that a lot of what people eat is really fuel for hard manual labor right. um, rather than for enjoyment in some sense. So in a country where there is growth, as in India, people are doing much less backbreaking work than once was the case. Okay. I kind of want to... Interject at this point too that you seem to have a special working relationship with India. In other words, that that's the country where you spent. Um, I don't know if it's a country where you spent the bulk of your career studying, but certainly quite a lot of your work seems to be about India. Can you talk about that for a while and why and yeah. why I you mean, chose the India? Place as I've a worked place to a study? bit as South Africa, but um, much more in much more in India. Um, I don't know if if you're a kid growing up in a grimy northern city in Britain, like in Edinburgh, where it rains all the time and everything's covered in soot. It's, it's much prettier now, but in, <laughs> in the 40s and 50s, it was a very grim place. You know, and you, you're sort of smart, and you go to the library and you read books about warm tropical countries. And, mm -hmm. you know, given this, all Brits have this special relationship with India. I mean, the enormous love-hate relationship that's gone on for 250 years, sort of, I do. And, you know, we're very similar people in some ways. They believe in caste. We believe in class, you know, and we're just sort of natural allies to one another. So I think as a kid, I'd always dreamed of going to places like um, India, um, and I didn't actually have an opportunity until, I think, 1980 when I first visited Princeton. And there was someone organizing a meeting in India and invited me to go there. And I had I toured around the Indian Statistical Institutes, of which there are a bunch there, and met a lot of people. The Statistical Institutes? Yeah, there, there is this thing. Malanobis, who, who's sort of a famous figure in India, had started... Um, the Indian Statistical Institute in Calcutta mm -hmm. um, in the 1940s. And in fact, sample surveying was sort of invented there. The British, for obvious reasons, wanted to know what the crop was going to be like every year. And they basically went all over the country and counted how many you know hectares of whatever there was. And Malinovis showed that you could do it with a sample survey at a tiny fraction of the cost. And there's a famous paper in the Proceedings of the Royal Society in England in like 1946, okay. and when Mahalo for the first time showed how to do this. So there was this long Indian history of, of collecting survey data, and of course I wanted to get my hands on those data, <laughs> and in those days the Indian government wasn't letting anyone near those things at all. Um, so I'd always wanted to go back and work on these things and look at these issues, um, and, you know, over the years, I got opportunities to do that, and I harassed people over the data until eventually someone 
gave me access. So it wasn't just the fascination with the country itself. It was also the idea that they had all this data that you were after and that you thought would help inform what it was you were trying to study. Yeah. And also, I mean, one of the things that's always seemed to be in short supply in India, and it's much, much better now, but it's, it's still a bit in short supply, is there's this, you know, magnificent Brahmin tradition of thinking, you know, statistical theory, social choice theory, all the rest of it. There's not such a strong tradition of applied work, uh, of people going out and working among the poor, seeing what was going to happen. So I think very early on in one of my trips to India, I met Jean Draz, who, who's been sort of a key. Um, who, who is that? Part. So Jean Draz is, has a very interesting history. He was born in Belgium. Belgium. His father, who's still alive in his late 80s now, I think, is a very distinguished economist who was president of the Econometric Society and founded an institute in Belgium called CORE, which is, I think, still a, a big operations research and analysis place. Um, and Jean was obviously always a very good economist. He went to India um, to do his PhD, which is a pretty odd thing to do, and has essentially never left. And he's become an Indian citizen, which is extremely difficult to do from the outside. Um, and he wanders around the country agitating on behalf of the poor. He writes books with the March's son. Um, they've written a whole mm-hmm. swathe of books together, um, including a recent one about India. And he and I have done a lot of empirical work together looking at calories and nutrition and poverty rates and so on in India. And for me, he's invaluable because he wanders around the country in sandals all the time, talking to poor people and trying to do things with them. He has share crops with people for years on end. You know, I mean, he really knows what's going on on the ground. And you can't get that by just looking at the data. Sure. Uh, you, I think, uh, caused a stir in India a few years ago. Um, when you found that rural poverty was actually much higher than previously been estimated. And I think this had to do with uh, with your work on price variations within a country, that not everybody in, in the same country pays the same amount for the same goods, that actually there's regional differences as well. I don't well. think we actually find that. That's one of the puzzling things I've seen in the press, and I don't recognize Oh, really? Recognize okay, okay. Yeah. This was in the Nobel Prize explanation. Well, uh, well, you want to tell us what, what happened? <laughs> Well, I mean, we did do quite a lot of work on trying to collect price data. And, you know, because if you've got how much people spend, you need some idea of a price index to mm-hmm. figure out how much it's worth. And it's a longstanding and very difficult problem. And still, even in the U.S., is to compare, like, New York with Alabama or something, or um, in India, you know, cities with countries. I'm not entirely sure it's possible. Um, and so we did better price indices, and they made a little bit of difference to the overall counts. And I think we denounced the urban numbers as being pretty stupid. Okay. Um, what was wrong with the urban numbers? I think exactly? what this is widely, now I'll get into trouble for saying this, but it, <laughs> it's um, widely believed in India, but it's never been formally admitted that there was an arithmetical issue, an arithmetic error in the calculations. At some of point. the price indexes for certain goods or no, for the just overall? for the overall price indices. So I think at some, India has these periodic expert groups which revise their policy 
their poverty lines. Usually when there's been some political crisis because the poverty line seems ridiculous or something. So they set up an expert, a group of academics and statisticians to examine this issue. And there was one in, I think, about 1993, which came out with perfectly sensible recommendations for doing urban and rural things. And they'd measured some urban and rural prices using the same sort of techniques that I'd later used. This was before I did any work there. And then they had to project them through time and the rumor, at least, is that whoever did that did not notice that the urban price index um, had a different base year than the rural price index. And so when they projected these things up to the future, the rural price and the urban price indices were way, way overstated, not because I'd find anything, but simply because they were using different Is overstating years. inflation in Indian urban areas? Well, no, they were overstating the ratio of um, prices in urban areas to prices in rural areas. Okay. So then what happened was when those new lines were introduced, it turned out that people living in cities were, in many states, were actually poorer than people living in the countryside. Got it. Okay. Which didn't make a lot of intuitive sense, especially given that people in the rural areas were moving <laughs> to, the, to, the to the cities. Um, and so, um, and, and it, it, I've always used it as a very good example of how measurement matters because the silly mistake, and no one really believed it when they looked at these numbers. And, oh, you know, something's gone wrong. Right. Um, but then you began to get papers in the World Bank saying the scandal of Indian urban poverty. <laughs> you know, so people were taking the numbers seriously. And then these numbers get encoded into conventional wisdom. I think something similar happened. I've argued this. Not everybody agrees with me. But okay. the International Price Comparison Project, which collects prices all around the world, um, in one of the revisions suddenly made Africa very much poorer. And it's around that date in which you know Africa is the basket case rhetoric became sort of standard in development economics. So those measurements, even when they're nuts, okay. can have a big effect on the way people think about things. You've, uh, you've pushed for a greater emphasis on self-reported uh, well-being, right? Household surveys of self-reported well-being, right. essentially people telling you how they're doing. Yep. Um, you think that, that's, uh, that their usefulness is underestimated by the profession. You think they could be used a little more widely. Uh, why so? Well, I mean, I, I certainly don't advocate replacing standard measures by them, and I certainly don't have that position. But it's clear that there's been enough work done now that these things uh, correlate with things you would hope they correlate with in sensible ways, and they also pick up stuff that you wouldn't pick up. Give some examples with other. of those things. Well, they're very sensitive to health, for instance, and so you would like a measure that has income in it, but that also is sensitive to people's health. Um, they're also very much more insensitive to unemployment than just the loss of income is involved, which is something many people find attractive and does indeed make sense to me. They're very sensitive to the amount of time you can spend with friends. Um, you know, social isolation is very bad for those indices, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, and so they, they do seem to pick up aspects of lives that seem to be important. I, I would certainly not advocate um, using them as replacements. Something to complement uh, standard measures of how much money people are making or spending. Yes. Or, or you know, you have health indicators, separate indicators, and so right. on. So there's a bunch of things. And it's not like policymakers only ever look at one number. But I think it's part of the whole um, campaign to sort of um, 
or understanding that GDP needs broadened out a bit, um, that GDP needs repaired in various ways. That's one part of the agenda. And the other part of the agenda is let's pay more attention to these other measures. Mm -hmm. And it's also very attractive that you don't have some expert telling you how you're doing and that you have your own voice in telling people how your life is going. So I guess I I would say that this seems to be another thread that runs through your work, which is that people should respect the agency of individuals in poverty-stricken countries or in developing countries, that especially within the aid debate, which we're going to talk about now, um, often their own considerations, the people who are allegedly being targeted to be helped, uh, are not taken into account, are not factored in. Um, do you agree with that general assessment of your work? I think that's and, a magnificent uh, statement of how I feel. I mean, there's lots of details, but that's the fundamental thing, that I think people's agency is being denied by these things, and they're not being treated as full, full by, human by Specifically by the way that foreign aid to poor countries works now. I think a lot of foreign aid is there for us rather than for them, and if they don't want it, that wouldn't stop us from doing it. And if we discovered it was hurting them, it wouldn't stop us from doing it either. But it would still not stop us from doing it. It would not stop us from doing it because we think something has to be done and somehow we know best. Um, And I find that very, very troubling. I also find it very troubling that there's just this huge income differential. I mean, it's all from rich people doing things to poor people sort of idea. And poor people are not really being fully consulted. Mm. (coughs) Excuse me. And if, as I've argued, that giving very large sums of money to governments who are already getting very large shares of their budgets from foreign sources, it actually does worse because it undermines the agencies of the agency of the citizens of these countries um, because it makes their government less responsive to them because the government can stay in power and do whatever it has to do, funded entirely by. So, effectively, according to this line of thinking, isn't entirely responsible for propping up these corrupt governments, but contributes to that while making it harder for the citizens of those same poor countries to change the way their government operates. Absolutely. But that's not the only effect. I mean, you know, PEPFAR, for instance, in the United States. Sorry, what? PEPFAR was the president's emergency plan for AIDS and whatever it is, research or something? Anyway. But, I mean, it was the George Bush set it up to spend money in Africa, do something about AIDS. And, you know, it's spent a tremendous amount of money on antiretroviral therapies in African countries, and there's a lot of people alive who would otherwise have been dead. And that's a huge moral gain. I mean, and I'd be the last person in the world to say that saving people's lives is, is, is really a bad thing. I think it's just when you think through these things, you have to seriously think about these other effects we've been talking about. And those may offset in some cases. They may not offset. I, I don't think every aid project is bad. Um, or that we should stop every single okay. thing. So it's a f- fairly nuanced argument. Then there are some cases where aid can help, but it has to be targeted towards healthcare. Is that is that no, a fair I'm statement? Not sure, that's right. I think even if you target it towards healthcare, it may change the balance a bit. But I think there's still the problem that you know if you run the healthcare system of Mali or something, then the Malians are never going to develop a healthcare system, and there's generations of infants and children who are never going to get looked after properly as a result. So somehow you have to take that into account. I don't think it's easy. But just let me clarify one thing, too. I think there's lots of ways of giving aid which do not have these problems. And so I'm not against aid. Okay. I'm against... Uh, Jagdish Bhagwati, I think, had this phrase, which is he said he's for aid 
for Africa, but he's against aid in Africa. And for me, that's a very good distinction. We could spend a lot of money here um, on fundamental research into diseases, better understanding of malaria, better understanding of diseases that don't hurt Americans. Right. Um, so, science, so in other words, what, you said that you, there were some ways of giving aid that you would support. One of them is in-country research, but here, in other words, into yeah. scientific advances that would help countries over there, but not the direct approach of sending money through foreign right. governments. We could also, I think the World Bank would be better as a giant consulting house like McKinsey or Gallup or something, you know, that actually did negotiation services for developing countries. So, that, for instance, if the U.S. is doing a trade deal with some small country, mm. you know, maybe the World Bank could bring some expertise to stack up against the American pharmaceutical lawyers or whoever is there on the other side of this. And once again, that doesn't do any internal corruption. Um, but what it does is level the playing field a little bit. American foods, um, agricultural subsidies are another example of okay. something where we're hurting people. So these things would cost us money. So, you know, we are spending money to help poor people, right. which I think is, you know, a moral requirement. Um, but I don't think we should do it in ways that hurt them. Sure. So those those two ideas um, sound like they would have long-term payoffs. Is there... Something that foreign countries can do about immediately alleviating poverty in other countries that would not have the kinds of unintended consequences or perverse consequences, rather, that you just mentioned? I think it's hard. Uh, I mean, and I don't have any particular okay. thing. One of the things that's been troubling me in what I've read, and it's not in The Great Escape because I just didn't want to commit myself to go that far, is if you read the record of humanitarian relief, which sounds like how could anyone object to humanitarian relief? There's been an earthquake or there's been, you know, there's a bunch of people who've been displaced by war or there's been a tsunami. But the track record of those things is among the worst of all the aid projects and especially but not exclusively in times of war. And, you know, I, that's essentially because if you try to help people in a war zone, the guys who are waging war are going to demand a tribute in order to let you help those people, and that will prolong the war. And okay. that's happened over and over and over again. Um, and so I don't know what you do in that situation. I mean, you know, it's true that, you know, the 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 conflict of this, which many Brits of my age will remember, is the Biafran War, which was the first time that starving children were put on television. Which war? This was when... Biafra or Biafra is, was a rebel pop province of Nigeria. Okay. Um, and I think this was in 1968. Um, and there was a civil war went on between this rebel. And many, many people were displaced and died. Sure. Um, and Oxfam, I think Oxfam, it was Oxfam that put the pictures of the starving children on British television. And it was the first one of these things where there was a mass public outpouring of school children and churches and everyone who gave money to help the starving Biafrans, sure. you know. And then it turns out that some of the planes that were flying into Biafra had guns as well as food. Sure. And the plane. I, I, I know you're skeptical of this um, because I've seen it in one of your recent columns. Uh, but there is a kind of flourishing research going on right now about unconditional cash transfers, yeah. things that target people in those countries directly. In other words, the money right. doesn't go through the government. Um, it seems to have 
pretty positive effects so far. Uh, do you want to talk about why you're, you yourself are a bit skeptical? I haven't done the work to go through those in detail, but I could tell you what I'd be looking for. Um, the, the 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 effects, the positive effects I've seen are essentially first-round effects, you know, which is if you give money to people, the people are better off. And, you know, th that's a little trivial, and a lot of them do better than that. But imagine what would happen if you gave very large sums of money to ordinary people in a country that's being run by a dictator. It's all going to finish up in the pockets of the dictator in the end. And as far as I can see, none of these studies even consider that possibilities. I mean, one of the an, an analogies... The second-order effect, you mean, that in the long term, this will have... It might not be so long-term if you start doing it on a large enough scale. You know, because the, the bad guys will be attracted to whatever cash flow is important enough. You know, so you can do a small-scale experiment that has great effects on people. And the dictator says, ooh, it would be very much in my interest to let this experiment go ahead and let them think it's going to work. And then, you know, when it rolls out, I can come along and do it. And one of the analogies I give is, you know, you have a neighbor who moves in and you discover he's some crazy cult member who's doing terrible things to his wife, using his wife and children as slaves. And the wife is really poor and the kids are really poor and you'd really like to help them, right? Well, you go and give money to them, it's not going to do any good at all because they're basically completely under control of the evil presence in their household. So that's the sort of model you want to have in mind. And if you're trying to bypass a government that we all disapprove of by giving money to the people, if that government is really in control, that ain't going to work. Right. I mean, it's just a simple equilibrium sort of argument. Okay. Um, it sounds like then... Uh that you're skeptical that this can scale up, that it might have a decent first-run effect, that it could even help people that are targeted by the money, but that in the long term it's not going to work out so well, especially if you do it at a big enough scale. That that sounds like a fair summary of your belief. There are serious risks, and I'm not. I mean, you know, if the government is in favor of helping their people, you don't need to give the money to the people. You can give it to the government. If the government is nailing their people to the floor then giving it to the people is not going to help because it'll all finish up in the bank accounts okay. of, of the rich guy. Incidentally, I sometimes misunderstood on this, but this is not, and this is all about giving money from the outside to a country. It doesn't apply to like in Mexico where Oportunidad is or whatever it was. You know, the, the Mexican government within a functioning democracy decides to give money to its own people then that's none of these considerations come Got into to account. So sometimes people think I'm against any sort of welfare, and I've been asked that many times. Not the case. In the last, and it's just not true. I mean, if it's domestic and it's negotiated and it's within a functioning democracy, and also the, the price committee used the word welfare on the very short citation, and people okay. have said to me, you know, how do I get people, how do we get people off welfare? And that's not what I'm okay. working on. Got it. Um, one other controversy that you've been involved with in recent years and that I happen to know you have a paper coming out about soon yeah. is about randomized control trials. I need to cite an economist here at Columbia named Chris Blattman yeah. who wrote – he attended, I think, your presentation of this paper, not yet published right. a few weeks ago. Not um, yeah. But the I'm sorry, it's not yet finished. Okay. Uh, but, the, but the gist is that you are skeptical uh, of the sort of – I guess you are skeptical of all the hype that's surrounded randomized control trials in the last four or five years, I guess, right? I mean, they've become a big tool within development economics. Yep. Uh, we should probably define them a little bit. Uh, randomized control trials are when you choose randomly, as the title implies. Uh, you choose 
some people within a given population for a certain treatment, and then you have a control group of people also chosen randomly uh, that are not given that treatment, and then over time you see how the two groups fare. Right. Um, a sort of simple example of this is uh, two groups of people who have a certain disease. One group is given a treatment, the other is not, and then you find out a few years later or whenever if the group that was given the treatment is doing better. Right. Um, You've said that uh, there are some limitations to them, but also I know that your argument on this is itself somewhat subtle. So do you want to give us a give us an overview of what you think, of what your paper is going to say? Yeah, well, I mean, what you said at the beginning is right. It's not that I'm against randomized controlled trials, and I think no one in their right mind would say that. They're one more empirical tool, and there's certainly situations in which it's hard to imagine how you get at something without randomizing over it. So, I mean, it's sort of like this argument, which is if you want to find out what will happen if you kick something, maybe you ought to kick it sort of idea. So, And it, sometimes neither nature nor policy will do that experiment for you, and you need that experiment. Um, that doesn't, of course, that doesn't imply randomization. I mean, scientists do experiments all the time where they kick things, but they don't have any randomization. So there's lots of room for experiments that are not randomized. Um, so I think the hype has just been too much. I mean, I think people um, overstate what these things can do. So I think, you know, there's got this argument brought about that if, if you randomize um, and you pick the two groups as you described, say 100 people randomly pick this way and 100 people randomly pick that way, that somehow they're identical and therefore anything, the treatment, any effect of the treatment could only be an effect of the treatment, not something else. And if you think about it for a minute, that's not true at all. Um, that there are many, many ways in which people can differ. And so if you pick 100 people randomly, another 100 people, they'll look, they can look completely differently. Is it a matter of sample size, though? Because no. that sounds like a situation where if you had a big enough group in each, if it's both so of the groups were big enough, it might work. Well, it sounds like that, but it's in fact not true. There, okay. There's a wonderful epidemiologist um, who called Vandenbroek, I think, um, who points out in the medical context that there are how many billion gene pairs in the human genome, all of which might affect the medical outcome. So if you, if you try to have a sample size big enough to make sure all of those are balanced, um, it's you know, more than the number of particles in the universe. I mean, you just can't do it. So if there's many, many causes, it depends on how many causes there are mm -hmm. as to whether you can expect it to be balanced. And it's true with an infinite sample size, it would be balanced on average, but that's not a very helpful statement. So I, I think that people have exaggerated how much control. I mean, what you really would like is what a scientist does in the laboratory, which is you control everything so there's no effect other than the experiment. Um, in social science, we often can't do that. And so we do random control. But random control is a lousy second-order substitute for actual precise control, which is knowing enough of what's going on to control the important factor. So some of that, a lot of that's just rhetoric, um, you know, which is the people. But it's important rhetoric, I think, because having policymakers buy into this by thinking that because they were randomly controlled, the two groups can't differ in anything but the treatment, and therefore what you see must have been the effect of the treatment. And that's not true. So um, I guess it, this seems like another area where uh, there's a bit of tension between theory and what the data are showing. Uh, but in this case, it's that you can see how the two groups differed and how they did, but it lacks explanatory power. Is that is that essentially yeah, what you're saying? Because you can't actually see what it was that made the difference. And it could have been the baseline differences between the two groups, which are 
you know. The other thing, I mean, this is a very long paper, and there's lots of arguments in it, and I don't really want to go through them all. But one of the other things that I think is is given a lip service but not much attention is paid to is that nearly all of these development experiments, very few of them are blinded so that people know which branch of the trial are. Very few of them are blinded. Meaning the people know whether they're experimentals or know whether they're treatments. I mean, if you're in a different class size, um, you know that you're in a small class as opposed to a big class. And there are exceptions um, where people do know. Um, there are very, some, some of the people who really believe in RCTs more than I do in the medical community, really hard line on this, they say there's no point in randomizing if you don't blind people. Because it might affect the behavior of people who know that they're not. No, if it's not blinded, the people who are in the different groups might behave a certain way because they know right. that they're in a certain group or they're exactly. in a certain category. Or, you know, you've got some desperate people. You give them a chance in this thing and they think, oh, my God, you know, I really got to succeed at this. And there's a sort of behavioral response, which has nothing to do with the treatment and which is ruled out. And, you know, there are all these placebo effects and things which we know about and things. And, you know, so if you don't blind people... It, I'm not sure I would argue that, but it's it's clearly an issue. Okay. And then there's a lot of stuff in um, for ethical reasons too. We talked about endogenous attrition. In um, I'm sorry, I'm teasing you with technical terms, but we talked about it in panels. <laughs> you can get the same thing here, which is you know you get into this experiment and you say, you know, holy cow, I don't want to be in this arm. I'm out of here. Yeah. Sort of idea. Right. And on ethical issues, there's absolutely nothing you can do about that. And right. that happens in medicine too. I mean, you know, you get in a trial. People get, selectively dropping out for whatever reason, but that tells you something which then you lose. Yes. Or it might be side effects of the pill, or it might just be and some a friend of mine told me her grandmother did this nine times until she got in the treatment arm. She had some anti cancer drug. You get this drug, you don't know whether it's an anti cancer drug or a placebo, takes it to her doctor and said, Will you test this for me? <laughs> Take the CVS, mm -hmm. you know, and they say, Oh, it's just talcum powder. And they say, Okay, I'm out of here. Find another trial, keep on doing that. So, you know, there's a lot of problems uh, of that. So, and people will behave differently if they know what they're treating. Sure. And sometimes you can turn that to advantage, but sometimes you can't. But I guess the, the, the biggest issue in the paper is something that we've thought about for quite a long time is, you know, telling someone what the average treatment effect is is not much use for an individual, right? So you could do an experiment on a million schools and find out if this new te teaching techniques works on average. It doesn't help any individual school whether to adopt that technique or not. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's sort of a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's the whole question of if you've done this experiment one place, how do you know it'll work somewhere else? Sure, the applicability of something that you find in a specific location or under specific circumstances and whether or not that has any general applicability to everybody and, else. And it's not just whether or not. I mean, it's, it's a more positive view than that. And I think my views have become somewhat more positive, which is that, you know, it obviously works in one situation and there might be another situation where it doesn't work. So my co-author, for instance, has this very nice example. She said her granddaughter wasn't doing all so well in school. So she said she knew what she'd do. She gave, him a de gave her a deworming pill. A deworming pill. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's this big controversy about how you uh -huh. deworm children. Yeah. Then it makes them do better in school. You know, so it, she says, my granddaughter got a deworming pill, and it didn't improve her school performance in her Oxford school at all. You know? <laughs> now, of course, that's preposterous. Yeah. And, you know, even if it did work in Kenya, and it doesn't work in, but the question is, where in between does it stop working? Right. And how do we know where that boundary is? 
And that's something experiment can't tell you, and then you're back in the world of conventional modeling. Okay. Because you've got to specify mechanisms and find out when they switch on and switch off. And, you know, that's sure. back to standard observation. So this planning. also, I think, is consistent with what you said earlier, that you like the word, the use of the word tinkering to describe some of your work. Incremental steps, don't get too excited by the hot new thing because we don't know how useful it's really going to be for some time. I think that's right. Um, but, you know, sometimes improvement turns into a completely different thing. Um, so you can tinker with something and you thought you were making a better car and it turns out it's an airplane or something, right. you know. And, and that sort of thing's happened a few times when I'm just pulling away at something and I discover something that people have thought about this for a long time just doesn't really make sense. Okay. Uh, I have one final question. Believe it or not, we've only just scratched the surface of the stuff you've okay. done throughout your career, but there's no way to get to all of it in one session. Um, my final question is a broader one. What has surprised you most, whether that's a single finding or just a general observation of the way that the world works um, based on your own study, your own research, your own career? What surprised me the most? I don't know. Um there are several things where, you know, I come across something and I think, this is so weird, it's got to be wrong. And then when it turns out to be nice, it turns out to be right. That is very nice. And, um, you know, that's only happened to me a few times, but it's sort of... Does, does one of those come to mind Well, actually, the, the very, very first one, which was a long time ago when I was still a research assistant in Cambridge, and I was working on the savings, and I had this idea that... Um, this was when Ted Heath had lost control of the inflation rate in Britain, and it went up to about 25 40% for a year or so. And, you know, I was a young father, and I would go shopping and buy stuff for my kids and what I, or my family. And what I would notice was that, you know, you go to the store, and coffee was up 20 pence or whatever it was from last week. And I said, oh, no, you know, we're not going to have coffee this week. So we didn't have that much money. And then I sort of realized that if everyone was doing that same, I mean, if there's a burst of inflation, in fact, all prices are going up because you buy things sequentially, people will hold off in the first instance. So this had the apparently ridiculous prediction that um, when there was a burst of inflation, savings rates would go up, right? And everybody thought, of course, that when there's inflation, saving goes down because you want to spend all your money in a hurry. Yeah. So I went around the common room as a young, brash research assistant saying, I've discovered that inflation is going to cause savings rates to go up. And people said this is the most idiotic figure. Until the data came out, and there was this huge spike in saving. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I lied, actually. I have one last question. Okay. okay. I want to combine two different quotes, one that's yours and one that's uh, included in the Nobel Prize Committee's um, summary of your work, okay? Here's what they wrote about you. Deaton concludes that current statistical procedures in low-income countries probably understate the global rate of poverty reduction and overstate the global growth rate. Um, that's one thing. And then your quote in the introduction to The Great Escape is that it is about the endless dance between progress and inequality. Um, this is all interesting to me because growth, economic growth, plays a hugely prominent role in your book, right? Um, economists from across the political spectrum have praised your selection as a Nobel Prize winner, right? Uh, and I think it's because you you take care to uh, explain the meaning, the importance, both of economic growth 
which I think people from the right-wing spectrum prefer, and inequality, which people from the left-wing spectrum really like. And then you describe your book as the endless dance between the two. And yet, according to the Nobel people, according to your work, global growth has been overstated, but the reduction in poverty has been understated. What do you make of all that? Um, the, I, I'm not sure I would connect up the two things quite okay. as sharply as you have. I mean, that quote about the understatement and the overstatement is to do with a conflict between what you see if you actually collect data from the individuals and the households and what is there in the national accounts. And India is the paradigm of that, but it's true in many other countries too. And of course, policymakers love economic growth. And even if their statistics are all broken, they're not going to fix things that do anything that bring down the rate of economic growth. I mean, it'd be a bit like asking the Indian government to change the rules of cricket so that Indian didn't win the 2011 Cricket World right. Cup or something. You know, totally unwelcome sort of thing. So they'll dismiss the household surveys, which are showing not so much growth. And the surveys are probably wrong, too. So that's why I think, in some sense, the surveys are not picking up as much poverty reduction as there ought to be. Um, and what you might... If, if you see household surveys not growing very fast and GDP growing very rapidly, you think it's probably inequality, and it may be inequality too. So that's the endless dance business that, you know, when you get a lot of economic growth, genuine economic growth as opposed to mismeasured economic growth, it tends to go to the, the few, at least in the first instance. And that I think collective action plays a role, you know. So that's the bit the right likes, which is it goes to a few in the first instance. And I think that's a good thing. I mean, no one grudges pharmaceutical companies the big profits they make when they first come out with a life-saving drug. Um, it's what happens after that that becomes much more controversial. So the metaphor you use is that we shouldn't mind it that some people climb the ladder more quickly or that eventually ascend to a higher place. What we should mind is if they pull up the ladder behind them after they've already gotten to That's where they're exactly going. That's right. And you, we see a fair amount of that about too. I mean, that takes, in developed countries in particular, it seems like we're is where I think you're everywhere. About this. everywhere. It's rent seeking. You know, it's what Mansur Olson wrote about years and years ago that small groups will try to capture the polity on their own behalf and try to stop other people coming up. Ah, you know, pharmaceutical companies will try to get Congress to pass patent extension laws, you know, which prevent people from benefiting things and that's those are very difficult things to handle but this is the endless dance um you've got to let the people have the benefits of their innovation and invention because that's where it all comes from on the other hand you've got to be careful and you don't want to go to a plutocracy that overcomes democracy which is something to worry about a lot And this is Cardiff back in the present day. Once again, next week, we are going to be starting Alpha Chat's third season, and we are so excited about it. So on behalf of producer-editor Amy Keene and myself, thanks as always for listening. And we'll see you here again next week for a brand new episode of Alpha Chat.